I'm in a glass case of emotion. Hey, welcome to Cinema Sessions, the podcast where film fanatics who happen to also be therapists geek out about their favorite films, sharing therapeutic insights, character deep dives, and a healthy portion of non-clinical nonsense. My name is Rick Gutterson. I'm joined today by my wonderful co-host, Kayla Tuttle. How are you doing today? You know, I'm feeling a bit heavy. This is a really heavy movie that we're going to be talking about today. Okay, okay. So I, we're we're uh, approaching Thanksgiving time here, and I was wondering if like maybe we're talking about like just too much turkey or the <laughs> stuffing, but we're talking about the movie. Well, the pregnancy hormones are real, and <laughs> there's a lot of food happening. Um, so that could also, I mean, Thanksgiving is built for third trimester of pregnancy, I feel like. Did you time that strategically? I mean, that might be like <laughs> I did not, family planning but I am going to hit. I am going to hit Thanksgiving and Christmas, which are pretty well known for eating copious amounts of food. So <laughs> I'll be good to go. It makes sense. I, I like building the family planning around like meal schedules <laughs> nine months out in the future. Right? Yeah, that was the main determining factor. I've, of, I've read textbooks on it. Yeah. It makes sense. It, it tracks. Yeah. Scholarly journal articles, plenty have been written about this topic. Plenty. <laughs> so we're talking about physically heaviness, emotional heaviness. All of that uh, and a bag of chips. I, I don't. I haven't said that say, saying since I was in like middle school, but we're going with it anyway. So today we are talking about the movie Spotlight. It is. Uh, it is that. It is a heavy movie, but it's a powerful movie. It's an Oscar-winning movie. It's an important movie, um, but it is a, a challenging subject. Kaylee, we were talking before we started recording just about the heaviness and also kind of putting on people's radars if they haven't seen this movie. Um, kind of a disclaimer. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about Spotlight today. We're going to be talking about childhood abuse, sexual abuse, spiritual abuse. Um, so if any of those things are not helpful for you to hear, then this might be one that you want to skip. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's hard, especially if it's a raw wound or a fresh wound. It, it's something that if you've experienced that in your life, we want to shine a spotlight, like the movie says, on it. But also, if it is too much, feel free to skip to the next episode. And um, But we, we hope that we can provide some really good content for you in covering this film. I'm really excited about it. It is, um, as I talked about in one of our previous episodes, it's one of my, I put it in my top 10 favorite films, which is a weird choice for me to add so before i get your thoughts on this film i just wanted to say um thank you for for following this podcast and, and checking it out um we're going to touch on a couple of things that, that addressing this problem from a systematic issue and like organizational and religious like kind of institutions and the dysfunction that it can create and then also looking at kind of an individual power like abuse of power and you know how we can avoid these situations from an individual standpoint and, and then also, like, if you're a leader, whether it's in a religious organization or a past, you know, pastoral care role, if you're in a nonprofit role, any small institution where you're in a leadership role, that's a very intimate conversations. We're going to talk about, like, some things that you can put in place to, like, prevent these situations from happening. Because I don't think any of these people come in going, this is what I want to do. I mean, I, there probably are some bad apples, but from a percentage standpoint, it I would I would offer that it, it's something that happens over time gradually as it, the position and the power changes you. Um, although there probably are some predators who seek out these types of positions for the power and the influence that they can have. So we want to talk about what are some things that we can put in place to prevent this stuff. Um, if you if you like this podcast, if you like these conversations, please follow us on Apple or Spotify, any of those, and check out our Instagram page. It's Cinema Sessions Pod. You can follow there for video clips and fun conversations and things like that. So, Kayla, this is a true story about um, a group of investigators who are uh, 
part of the Boston Globe newspaper group, and they are diving into this story. And then the more they under, uh, uncover, the more stuff that comes up. And so um, at the core of it, though, it is a movie about newspapers. So that leads me to my curious question. Excuse me, I have a few more questions, if you don't mind. Kayla, we've acknowledged multiple times, there's a, there's a little bit of a generation gap between you and I, right? What yeah. is your personal experience with newspapers? Ooh. Do you have a personal experience with newspapers? Not as an adult. When I was younger, I think we got it, and I would just pull out the cartoons because that was, you know, all I was really interested in. But I do remember, I mean, especially, so I'm kind of like on the fringe of when internet was getting really big. So I kind of had like, you know, half my life without it for the most part, and then half my life inundated with technology. So I do remember combing through like classifieds and my parents looking through and being like things for sale or like home rentals and things like that. So combing through those sorts of sections. So you, you never kicked back on a Sunday afternoon, broke open the paper, put your legs up on like the, the little footstool and just kind of start reading the the Sunday paper that weighed like 16 pounds. No, and never. There's a lot of things that you've missed out on Kayla. I, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this might be near the top. I mean, yeah, sure, you can scroll and f- quickly do word searches and get exactly where you want to go to, but carrying a three-pound newspaper on a Sunday afternoon that has sheets of paper that are approximately three feet tall and trying to fold it and maneuver it while trying to get to the right part of the article and, and then flipping it and reversing it, rolling it up, using it to um, kind of swat away flies if you have to, you know, like there's just, it was the pinnacle of I've arrived in life. Is, is when you started reading the newspaper. In fact, I so I, I talked about how working in the car business in, in my 20s, we would have newspapers delivered every morning. And so before the customers are coming in, kind of after you're getting ready for the day, everyone's out in their desk, feet up, up on the desk or whatever, and they've got their newspaper out. And they're flipping to like the different sections. And it was like the ultimate way to ease into your morning. You've got your coffee and your like massive newspaper and, and you're just reading. And I don't know, I kind of, I don't miss the the, the the physical paper itself sometimes, but there's, it's just not the same exact feeling that scrolling on a paper site on your phone is. And so there's some fun to it. Similar to like how Kindle thought was going to be the next thing, but people just missed the touch Uh of a book. I I think the sheer size of it makes it a little bit different of an example, but there's something about just touching the newspaper and like the weird smell that it had. Even like, this is a thing from childhood. I don't know if you experienced the silly putty on a newspaper Oh yeah, did you I have that? that before? Yeah, <laughs> and seeing it, sh- the ink show up on your silly putter, like, oh look uh-huh. at this. I don't really miss that part of it too much, but there's some things about reading the paper in the morning that I actually do miss. It's, it was kind of a fun experience. It sounds like you miss the nostalgia of it. Yeah, I, I do. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know how how quickly it would wear off. It probably would wear off rather quickly. I'm like, because yeah, and I wonder, like, this is one of the things where even if I tried to do this today, I don't think it would have the same impact that you're describing because it was like encapsulated in that time of your life. Yeah, right? yeah. I I want a visual. I, I like if you ever find yourself actually holding a newspaper, please somehow take a picture of it or have someone take a photo of you. Cause I just think that would be awesome. Just like a pipe in your mouth and just like this doing your little word puzzles. Then. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, yeah. So newspapers, different generation, but it was a, a fun experience nonetheless. And I guess uh, I'd, I'd be curious to hear from other people if, if they loved the newspaper experience and miss it or have nostalgia for it, or if it's like, yeah, that was been there, done that. 
phone, internet, iPads better. Let's just move on from that. So um, I thought it would be fun to revisit the glory days of newspapers, which as you're watching this movie, um, it really brings back that prominence, especially as they're running the papers through the print and, and all of those things. So Kayla, before we jump into the, the discussion about this movie, could you give us a quick synopsis of the film Spotlight for people who haven't seen it yet? Yeah, so this film, this is a dramatization of a real event that happened. So a group of investigators from the Boston Globe newspaper started investigating the church, which takes place in Boston because it's the Boston Globe, <laughs> um, which I believe has probably the largest uh, amount of parishes and Catholicism just kind of like inherent in the culture of Boston um, because it's a very Irish-centered town. Um, but they start to realize that there are some different accounts of injustice happening locally and it starts kind of small just like some local parishes and some local priests but as they start to kind of run the numbers and talk to people and hear experiences it becomes a much larger story about all sorts of priests and people in positions of power within the church um, and then the system that tried to cover it up Mm. and try to shove it under the rug yeah at its core it's a it's an investigative movie about like figuring out like how does something like this happen in place uh, happen and Mm. what pieces are in place that protect the secrecy of these things. And so, so I want, Kayla, we talked about this before we started recording. You had never seen this movie before, Mm-mm. right? So like, what are your initial thoughts in watching this movie? Did you enjoy the movie? Did you not like it? Like, how did you kind of process this film as you watched it? Yeah, I enjoyed the movie. It would, it would not by no means be like my favorite movie. Not in my top 10, like Rick. <laughs> uh, I love the actors in it. The The cast is star-studded. I mean, it's hard to get a better cast than they have. Um, it's just, yeah, it's really heavy. It's it's hard, I think, especially like the weather's getting colder. Like, this is kind of a tough one to watch. Um, I think if I could watch it, sometimes I'd have to watch these movies in spurts a little bit. Mm. You know, like, break it up. You know, watch like 45 minutes at a time. I think that probably would have been better. But I liked it overall. I like how they cover it. I like the angle they take. Um, yeah, I like the journalistic integrity of this film. We, we talked a little bit in prepping. Um, I sent you a text as a comparison. I want to see after watching Spotlight if you thought about it. Very different context and what they're investigating. But I had mentioned like potentially some similarities between another f- investigative film, uh, Zodiac. And even mm-hmm. Mark Ruffalo's in both films. Like you've seen Zodiac and I know that you love David Fincher films. Did you see any kind of like parallels or connections in, in, in the investigative process or was it a very different movie? Um, it's, it's, I don't know. It's Zodiac is a lot darker, I think, because I mean, they're dealing with a serial killer, which is just a very different vibe. Um, but still like the CD kind of underworld and trying to piece together things and figure out what went wrong. Um, I think too, like it's like, it speaks to, they both kind of speak to like a system outside of them. So like with this movie, it's like the, the Catholic church that they're investigating. Um, but then also like internally what went wrong. Cause they start to learn along the way of what are all these failures? Like people had sent this information and reports to them years before. And they're like, why wasn't this followed up on? Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like a double failure of a system, which can also happen in like police forces too, of, you know, they come across some evidence and, they don't really connect the dots as quickly as they should. And then people end up suffering because of it. 
Yeah, I think it's weird to say that I love this movie because it is such a heavy movie. I mean, I cried when I watched it. It made me angry. I mean, that's the first emotion to me that comes up is just anger in watching this mm-hmm. film. Like, I can't believe it makes me sick to my stomach that this is a real story and that real lives were impacted and, and it broke my heart. I remember vividly it was um, so it came out in 2015. And so I was the day of the Oscars in 2016. So I think that would have been February of 16, I want to say. And uh, I was trying to watch as many of the Oscar films as possible, and I'd never seen Spotlight. And I, I was debating of like, can I watch it beforehand or whatever? And I think it was either on sale at Best Buy or something. I ended up just buying the Blu-ray the day of the Oscars because I wanted to watch it. And I finished the movie probably a half hour, forty-five minutes before the Oscars started. And I remember watching it and just weeping at the end, and and going like, oh my gosh, like this is the movie that has to win. Like, this movie has to win the Oscars tonight. And so I was, all night long, all of a sudden, I was pulling for it. And and when it won, it was weird to say I was excited for that. But I was just like, I think it was that mixture of, like, this was a good movie. And also, there's that self-righteous kind of, like, anger in the sense of, like, mm-hmm. this, this there needs to be a, quote-unquote, spotlight on this event. Mm-hmm. And people need to be, become even more aware of that. And so I think... Um, that meant a lot to me as well. So I, and I'll get into this a bit more. I think there's some personal connection to not so much the specific atrocities that happen in this film, but like just the idea of abuse of power and religious dysfunction that really hits home to my personal story that makes this film so compelling to me. And also like in going like, how do you prevent something like this from happening? Which is why I thought this would be an interesting film to, to kind of break down. Um, so yeah, so we mentioned it's, uh, it won Best Picture in 2016. Uh, it's oddly enough, along with RoboCop, in my top 10 list. If you didn't check out Kayla and I over the summer, we had a fun episode just talking about our top 10 favorite films. Um, spoiler alert, I put Spotlight in it. I also put RoboCop in it. So that shows my weird Similar, my, you know. my weird, diverse taste in films. But if you didn't check out that episode, Kayla, we had a fun time over the summer breaking that down. So uh, a couple, couple if, if you haven't seen this film, it, it's... Because it's a true story, it's hard to talk about like spoilers. But I guess um, here's here's my new spoiler, Kayla. I found a drop for it. Hey, 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 come on, come on! I haven't seen it yet. It doesn't have anything to do with the plot. Still, still, I like to go in fresh. <laughs> <laughs> it was in a random scene from Seinfeld. I was watching. I was like, oh, we could use that. So anytime we're go. about to have spoiler talk, here's the warning. Hey, hey, hey come on, come on! <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. It doesn't have anything to do with the plot. Still, still, I like to go in fresh. Good times. That's Ben Stiller's dad, by the way. Jerry Stiller. Is it really? Uh-huh. The one who's it's always... Not a, one of them, I thought it was Willem Dafoe at first. One of the... The voice kind of sounds like him a little oh, bit. Oh, the other guy does. Yeah. I, I don't know mm-hmm. the name of that actor, uh, but he, he sounds like him. Yep. So this, this movie stars Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams, Mark Ruffalo. Uh, I think it's Liv Schreiber, I think is how you pronounce his first name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Stanley Tucci, our good old friend. <laughs> Stanley Tucci's amazing. I love Stanley Tucci. He's he's phenomenal in this movie. I, like his character, it's a little different from um, uh, Devil Wears Prada. All right, everyone, gird your loins. <laughs> but uh, he's he's excellent. But this cast is phenomenal. I know that Mark Ruffalo and Rachel McAdams were both nominated for Best Supporting Actress or Best Supporting Actor Actress. Mark Ruffalo was not nominated for Actress. Uh, they have, they haven't changed the Oscar nominations yet. Uh, so. Here's here's what we want to talk about. So it's it's a true story, and if you haven't seen this film, uh, I feel still think it's worth kind of hearing this discussion to see if you want to watch the film or not. Um, but I, but I think it's um, it's a true story, so you can find all the information on the internet and stuff and research. And the, one of the things that's really cool is it does seem to be fairly accurate in its 
true story representation versus um, a lot of other true stories that are based on a true story but very loosely based. I know that they had people that were a part of this investigative process in like working side by side with the actors to make sure mm. the integrity of the film was, uh, I think because they, they really wanted to honor the source material and, and the, the lives that were impacted negatively by what's going on here. But the, um, this is a hard question because I don't know, again, because it's a heavy movie, it's hard to ask like, what were your favorite scenes, but what scenes to you stood out as like significant or powerful that really were moving to you? Yeah, there's a there's a few. I mean, it, I think inherently it will it will have some spoilers to it. But um, I really like the scenes with Stanley Tucci. I mm. think he was just like a, I don't know, kind of like a wise old man kind of character in this. Of he had he had investigated this to some degree and it, like it didn't go anywhere. So he's trying to help this team to the best he can without breaking ethics or anything. Um, but he says like he has a lot of good one liners of just mm-hmm. like where it sums up like what they're talking about and they're going over the victims of like where they ended up or where they are now and he's like oh those are just the lucky ones because they're still alive yeah that yeah. was that really hit me of like oh this is not just this happened and they moved on but like i mean people lost their lives to this because they couldn't wrestle with it the shame of it right um that one and then he when he, when Michael Keaton is it his brother he goes to visit? I could goes, I, I don't remember. It's either a, a, I want to say it's a, a former colleague or friend. Someone he's close to. Yeah, it's like someone he's really close to, and he uh, shares with him that he's investigating this, and the guy um, is very shamed about it. Doesn't really want to be vulnerable, and he's you know him and his wife or whoever's with. They're like you know get out. We don't want to hear about this or talk about this. Like they were kind of shoving it under the rug, mm-hmm. but then he comes out and he's like let me see the list of people and yeah. he starts circling names of, yep, you got this right. Yeah. Cause he, he was a lawyer who was representing these priests and, and kind of as a defense lawyer, if I remember correctly and helping these guys get off the hook. And so there was a lot of shame in talking about this, plus the ethics of, um, you know, kind of legal privilege. And, and, and yet finally, you know, Michael Keaton's character was able to speak to his heart and just go like, this is the right thing to do. And yeah. that scene where he finally shows up and says, "Give me the list," that gave me goosebumps. Yeah. And he circles basically all the names. Every single he just name. Has big columns. Yeah, it's not like oh they missed this one or that. Like every single person was part of it. Yeah, I think the the part that got me early on, I don't remember how far into the movie it is, but they 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 talk to that. There's an author that they get the name of who talks to them and like, hey, we think we found 13 names of priests yeah. who were, you know, using their positions of power to to abuse or molest you know, young children or young boys. He's like, and then they asked the guy, does that sound accurate to you? He goes, no. And like, Oh, okay. Maybe we're wrong. He goes, that number's way too low. Yeah. I think the implication at first is like, Oh, that's too many. It's uh less than that. We misjudged. And then he's like, no, that's not even close. Yeah. And then when he says 6% of all of them, they do, they, they do the math and calculator. Like that's 90 names. Mm-hmm. that they're just like the sickness that you feel when you're like, there's 90 priests in Boston alone based on this percentage of his research. And then when they do all the names, they crack the code in, in like all the old school journals that they're going through and realize, Oh my gosh, we just found 87 names. Uh, it, the, the investigation of that part is just like, it's so chilling to go like, mm-hmm. we're happy we found these names, but I cannot fathom that this is true. And then they just keep being more and more. And like, this is just in this one city. Where is this worldwide? And they mm-hmm. show the list of cities at the end credits of this film 
of where, oh my gosh, it's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Yeah, I think that's what's so wild about this movie is it's like I kept writing down the word microcosm because I was like, it's just they're taking this subsection. They're just taking the city of Boston, which makes sense, you know, Mm -hmm. Catholicism, Irish influence, all these things. But like, it's really just this little part of what's happening everywhere else. They're just studying the system of how it's happening, how it's being covered up. And then also like the really scary part of the layers of this is that not only did they find these names, people know that they did this, they're still operating mm-hmm. as leaders and priests and haven't positions of power. They're just moving them to different parishes instead of actually reprimanding them in any way. Yeah, that scene where they find, I, I, I forget what the, the document is called, but it's those yearly journals of what parish every single priest is located for that calendar year. And when they find the pattern of like sick leave, absence, mm-hmm. vacation, like, oh my gosh, they have a designation for all these people who have been uh, accused of molestation, assault, abuse, rape, and they're just being transferred. And here's the document. And so they said, said, instead of um, looking for the the book to confirm the names, what if we can be proactive and look for any priest in this book who has that designation and then write their names down? That's when they found the 87 names. And they're like, oh man. That that part was chilling to watch as they're making that discovery, and you see like the way it, the film is edited is so powerful. Like the just kind of the fast forwarding of time. Like, hey, she's reading it out on the porch, and he's reading it at lunch, and just twenty four seven. It's it is crazy because this is the internet. It's out, but it's not what it is now, and so all of this investigation has to be from like hard copies. They keep referring to like, clips. So mm-hmm. I remember this. I, I don't know if you had this in elementary school days or not, but you know you couldn't just go online and look for an old article you had to go to the library and they would have this like um, visual clip that you could look through through this big this big uh, device. I don't even know what to call it. And you would kind of upload these clips from certain newspaper dates. And then you'd have this little like winder that you would scroll through the different pages of that newspaper. And it was like backlit. So it was like translucent or whatever. But uh, And so they're having to go through these old clips the hard copy way where now you just do a Google search and all that's avoided. But like thinking about the investigative time it must have took to just process all of the data back in, I think, 2001? Yeah, because they referenced 9-11. Yeah, because 9-11 happened. Yeah. I know. Like I feel like, I mean, this story would have broke so much quicker had they had the technology and the, the resources that they do today. You know, that's another thing that's interesting about this movie is like sometimes a true story is handcuffed by the real events that happen. Because like you wouldn't script out if this was a fictional story, there's parts that you maybe wouldn't script out the way it does. But what's so interesting is because of the natural events in time, it creates this extra layer of tension in the film. Like we're investigating this like horrible thing. We're getting like breakthrough. All the witnesses are finally happy that their story is going to be told. And then nine will heaven happens and it just shuts the whole thing down for like months, I think. And so you have all these survivors, like you're just like everybody else who wanted me to tell them a story. You're never going to do anything with it. And you feel that like moral responsibility that the journalists have to like really share this information, but yet they don't have any control over when it can go public until there's other events that start to happen with like some of the legal documents being, you know, kind of um, opened up for the public and stuff that kind of fast forward the process again. But that builds so much natural tension in the film that like, and it's part of the real story, which is incredible. 
Yeah, I think, yeah, too. Like, it makes you really feel for the victims of why would you... I mean, because to tell your story is to re-traumatize yourself in a sense. Like, yeah. I have to go back there. I have to answer these questions. I I mean, you kind of see... Um, I think it's Rachel McAdams, She's a, and she's asking for explicit details, not just... I was molested or you know what happened, you know, like they're mm-hmm. kind of, he was kind of like beating around the bush and kind of alluding to things. And she's like, the language is really important. I need to know exactly what happened to you. Yeah. I was thinking about that from a therapy standpoint, right? Cause you know, it's very different profession from investigative journalism, but at the same time, mm-hmm. like they're dealing with such a sensitive, such a sensitive matter and people's really painful traumatic stories. Like I like how they showed there's a sensitivity to that, but that is from their perspective, like, to re-traumatize yourself, like you have to know, like this is going to have meaning, which is one of the things we know, it, like is helpful in healing after trauma. Is like, can my story have meaning? But that's a scary thing to put yourself out there. This is public information now. If I go public with this, people are going to know, and that's really scary. And so you see that wrestling match that these people have in telling their story and like weighing the risk and reward of all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and in a therapeutic context, this would be very different about how this story unfolds. Like like that scene would kind of be like probably over sessions, right? Like mm-hmm. a client might say in session one or two, like I was molested when I was, you know, a child. Mm-hmm. And then you don't like ask for more detail or have them be more specific if they're not wanting to go there. But, just, you know, you empathize, you, you kind of like see mm-hmm. if they want to talk about it anymore. Um, but then maybe like over time, that kind of like goes down to the more specific details of like, I have this with client, like, you know, I'll learn they were abused when they were younger, but then you start to learn as time goes on, oh, it was my brother. Oh, it was a family member. Like, and then it becomes more and more complex, like that they're giving these details over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One more scene that really gets me. Um, well, there's there's two. Uh, the, the first one is when they're going through the list of the priests and where they live and where they've been relocated to. And that one journalist, I, I forget his name, uh, he's got the, the big mustache and he just goes, What? And he stops and he get, walks out of his house and walks down the sidewalk and he goes, that home is on my street. Mm. And he's just devastated. So he writes the note to his kids on the, on, his, on the fridge, do not go near this house, don't go talk to those yeah. people. And he has that wrestling match. And I was struggling with this part too. Like He goes to Michael Keaton's character, who's the editor of this spotlight unit, which is like it's very confidential and they have to protect the information until they to go public with the story. And he goes... I don't feel good about keeping this a secret. I mean, there are kids going right in front of this treatment house where this guy who's been molesting kids lives and has you know, kind of been relocated to. I feel like we have it. We have to, to warn them. But in doing so, it would break confidentiality of the story before it's ready to be released and could r- risk the idea that um, they'd actually get the story right and create institutional change, which is what they're or systematic change, which is what their true goal is, not just to report a couple of priests. So what would you do in that situation? Because that's a really hardcore ethical dilemma. On one hand, I need to protect those kids. On the other hand, we might not stop the problem if this goes public too soon. I know. Like, that would be really hard to rest. I think, like, I always have to put my mandated reporter hat on. As a th- I mean, even if it's, like, in my personal life and I, like, like anecdotally is a di- little different. But, like, if I saw someone abusing their kids or do- doing so- or abusing, you know, like an elder family member or something, like, I have a duty to report that to some degree. So something like this, I would have to report. We have to, we have a duty to warn. Um, my guess is that reporters are not mandated reporters. I haven't really looked into that. Um, and I don't even know if mandated reporting was actually, cause it's the Terrasoft case when that happened. And I don't know if this had actually happened yet, but um, 
if they were even like mandated to report that. Like I definitely get the like personal struggle mm -hmm. and I kind of wrestle with that time to time. Like when clients tell me things of I, like, I know I can't do anything with the information, but just learning like this happened or this business is really corrupt or, you know, this church or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's like a personal moral dilemma. And then there's like your professional more like us as helping clinicians where we are mandated to report things yeah. like this to ensure that it doesn't happen. All right, Kayla, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Kayla, 15 years ago, was considering going to, to, to uh, mental health professions, getting her degree in counseling. But then she just, she picked up that newspaper. She was really inspired by investigative journalism and she switched career paths and, and became a reporter. So now you're a reporter and you're put in this position. What do you do? Do you, do you bring it up or do you protect the story until it can be released? I think like morally, personally, I would almost try to operate a Stanley Tucci's character. To, I really like him a lot. Like, I think I can kind of like identify with a lot of his traits of um, trying to lead people in the right direction, but not explicitly saying anything, if that makes sense mm. of like, you know, like kind of let it like protect the story overall, like as much as possible, like until it can come out in full force, but also maybe leading people along that pathway, like, Hey, have you, checked out this place like when was the last time your records were audited like just kind of like pushing people in that direction as much as possible mm -hmm. yeah he does a great job as the lawyer i don't remember uh how he I, I, details are a little foggy about how he initially gets connected but i know he's had to work with families who have been impacted by mm -hmm. by molestation cases and stuff and he, he goes and talks to the, the mom or the kids or, or whatever and even you see that several times in this movie and so yeah he so he has to protect the the integrity of the families that he's serving. He can't give details, but yet you can see these situations sicken him and he wants to be a part of the solution, but he's limited in how he can attack it in his legal responsibilities and the, the ethics that he has to follow. And so he kind of gives some breadcrumbs and this and that until finally Mark Ruffalo's character starts to make some headway. And then he starts spending more time with him. He's like really seeing the passion. This isn't just a case like this means something to them, and maybe we can solve it. And I love how he's given those little clues. Like his character in this movie is amazing. One more scene I want to talk about before we switch into therapeutic themes. And it kind of is a good segue. It's the scene that makes me cry. Every time I watch this movie is when Rachel McAdams knows, like, cause one of the big moral themes is like all these people are kind of, maybe attended church here and there or grew up Catholic or whatever, but the this, this story makes them so sick, it's hard for them to step foot into a church. And so Rachel McAdams even mentions like, I can't go to mass with my mom anymore. It's just too hard for me to watch this. And you see that wrestling match of like, my mom's going to read this article and she's going to be devastated and yet I need to write this article. And they show the scene at the table where Rachel McAdams wants to be sitting with her mom as she's reading it for the first time. And just the heaviness on the mom and watching Rachel McAdams' like eyes, it's such beautiful acting, watching her eyes watch her mother be just shattered internally as she's reading this news for the first time. And uh, and then she just stops and says, can you get me a glass of water? And and just like, I just, I don't know why, I just start sobbing in that scene. I think it's just like the humanity of like knowing this is, this is something we have to do to protect these kids and protect future kids from being you know hurt, but it's going to destroy my mom, but, mm -hmm. but I need to do it. And, um, man, did you, did, did that scene hit you like it hits me? Yeah. I think like, because it's such a, it's a, it collides her personal life and her professional life of, wow, we do a lot of good, but we're, we are going to harm some people yeah. in the process. Like it's going to hurt a lot of people. Yeah. I, I, I'm trying to remember, um, 
if it was the movie because I, so I started to watch a bunch of documentaries on youtube afterwards about some of these things and so i'm blurring the lines if it's like something that they show in the end or if it's a documentary afterwards I, I think it was a documentary but like basically they came to the conclusion that they prevented approximately 1,000 people from being hurt because wow. of this this project that they took on and um and the, the guy yeah it must have been a documentary i think it was the real reporter and he was just saying like this made it all worth it and just like it just it was really moving to watch I, so there's a lot of cool content online that if you want to dive further into this the true story of this film that you can just do some searches online about spotlight the movie spotlight the real story and spotlights the investigative team that's a part of the boston globe that's kind of like their top secret confidential thing that they only put on the most select important stories and i'm glad that they got put on this so let's switch into therapeutic themes this is the reason i wanted to kind of jump into this movie it is that this this movie the subject matter is that there's there's these catholic priests who had been molesting children and and uh and then the ramifications of all the lives and the trauma that they experienced but i wanted to kind of zoom out and just broaden the topic a little bit to organizational and religious dysfunction right because ultimately what you see in this film is that there are systems in place to protect this dysfunction and the question that i always have is why does something like this happen I mean, I sing that song as I'm watching this movie, of course, but like, why does something like this come about? Like, is this, because this is not one bad apple like they talk about. This is a whole system of dysfunction Mm -hmm. and it represents like modern times. Like this is still happening. It's not just happening in the Catholic church. It may not be that type of situation, but it's happening in churches and nonprofit organizations, but we're going to focus on the religious institutions like today in America. Yeah, and I yeah, I want to say that essentially everything we're talking about in the context of religion and leadership and power and all of these dynamics, this could be a business, mm-hmm. this could be any sort of system where these same dynamics are at play. Like I think it's just religion is so um it's easier to talk about because like there's such this like morality ethics like inherent in religion that we really want to talk about. Yeah, I mean, if this was uh the TV show like um, Succession, we wouldn't have mm-hmm. it in the same episode because like it sometimes it's expected in business to get ahead. There's the things that we honor. It's it doesn't mean it's right or it's ethical, but there, there's the the, the hey, whatever it takes to get ahead mentality. So if you have to cut corners, if you got to hurt people, if you got to cover stuff up, you know, like that's a different kind of thing. And it's and it's it, there's a wake of damage that happens. But in religious institutions, the dysfunction is different from other types of situations because it's so closely tied to this spiritual figure in God, right? So you're representing someone else. Where in business, you're representing yourself in the business, but mm-hmm. it stops there. Whereas the the power and the systems of like religious institutions are are intentionally representing, in their words, like a, a God figure. And so it adds an additional challenge in the ramifications of the moral failures or the system failures or, or whatever that we're looking at. I There was a quote from the movie I wanted to, to kind of um, share because it, it just broke my heart when it said, um, if it takes a village to raise a child, it also takes a village to abuse one. Yes. And to me, that quote summarized the systematic dysfunction that you see held in this movie and also in like the, the real world when like, it's like, it's it's really hard to have one bad apple because one bad apple gets found out. The secrets mm-hmm. get found out. If it's covered up, it's usually because there's multiple like problems and multiple problem people and multiple problem systems in place. So in broadening this conversation, the question I want to start having is like, we're going to cover some different angles of this, but like, 
why does something like this happen? So as we start to unpeel that layer, like what are some things that you see in this movie that we can also highlight maybe as reasons why some of this dysfunction happens in a religious organization? Yeah, I kind of like the thing of it's not just bad apples. Like if it was bad apples, we'd pick those people out. There would have people checks and balances in place and then they'd be, you know, ousted. But it's more of like a root system idea. And like as I was watching this, I thought a lot about, well, it's not the same. It reminds me of it like the nature nurture debate of like I think people are they have these inherent qualities to them. You know, like there are people that seek out these positions to be put here. Um, But whether it's like personality, trauma, dynamics, family, whatever, it's like that that you're coming into this. But you're also met with this nurturing quality that enables those characteristics to come to the surface. Mm hmm which would be like the church system or organization or whatever that you're in. But I think the the biggest separation with like a business and then like a religious influence is a business. There are still checks and balances to some degree. Even if you're the CEO, even if you're the top, like you have a board of directors, you have like market accountability to say like, if your decisions aren't going well, like the company doesn't do well and you're probably going to go bankrupt or, you know, like there's some sort of really tangible sort of balance in place. Whereas if God is the only person that you're answering to, I mean, who's going to call you out on that? If you were the closest they can get to God and giving someone so much power that they are looked at as like holier than thou and they can do no wrong. I think that's the real problematic issue. Yeah. And and this is, I would say to preface this conversation, well, two prefaces. One, we're highlighting the negatives, but we also acknowledge like this isn't rep- in, it, this doesn't represent all of religious in- institutions, right? There's great no, ones, um, you know. There's there's great institutions that do amazing work, right? So we're, even though we're highlighting a negative thing, this isn't broadening it to like all institutions are this way. The other thing I think it's important to recognize that even though this isn't our field of expertise in the, the, the specific dynamics of some of these institutions, that there would be people that are much more knowledgeable than us and. Um, in acknowledging, I think we're trying to approach it from the, the, both the micro level of, of, of preventing trauma in people's lives, but also the macro level of like, how do we come alongside the, the, the church leaders, the, the pastoral, you know, ministers and stuff, and, and also look at putting on our macro hats of creating that systematic change, um, using our mental health professional backgrounds as, as the, the, the tools and resources that we bring to the table on that. But like the, the thing that came to my mind is like, some of the institutions are going to have different infrastructures. So like a non-denominational church may not have a, the, the board of directors that you would see or the, the elder board or the, the kind of the group, like in a nonprofit setting, that's kind of where I come from. You have a board of directors that the executive director still has to report to. So even though the board in, members individually aren't that director's boss, collectively they are the boss in the sense of they could vote that person out of power. Some church institutions don't have that. So like you said, in that case, it's a, it's a lone wolf making all the decisions and they might have a team of staff members around them, but they may not have an exact board or they have a board, but they've really done a good job of hand selecting the people that are all going to be yes people so they can do whatever they want. Yeah. Then you have like the longstanding religious institutions that have not only that individual church and their leadership team or their elder board, but like the institutions above them, the regional and the national things. So like in the Catholic church, for instance, or, you know, large, large denominations, whether it's Methodist or Baptist or those kinds of things, you have these large institutions overseeing the individual churches that there could be disconnects between like how hands-on are they? And that's kind of the similar parts of like a business. If you look at like, 
let's use McDonald's for an example. Like you have corporate McDonald's, but are how often are the corporate members of that, you know, organization going into the stores and being, you know, hands on the deck and, and, and just kind of seeing like what's actually happening with customer interactions. Are they standing back and just looking at the data that's being reported? Right. So I think that's where some of the disconnects can start too, is like how involved are these larger scale organizations are in the actual help of these people and support of these people, or are they just after the fact doing damage control to try to protect the organization? Yeah. Another thing of like how I was thinking about like differentiating someone in a, and I also want to say this could be anything spiritual. This does not have to be religious at all. Like this could be a cult or a group of market, like anyone, but the other thing that's like hard about spiritual or religious leaders is they, unlike a biz- a business leadership position, are instructing you in ways of life. So you are so connected to them in your day to day of like, am I being a good person? Am mm. I being a good Christian or follower or whatever you label yourself as? That like your identity becomes so intertwined with this person that to admit that they failed. And that they had a moral failure is almost like admitting that you failed, which I think just creates and breeds this tension of why we cover these things up. Because I would have to admit that the system that I have depended on and believed in mm-hmm. and invested in was wrong. So I am wrong. Yeah. Yeah. You see that in some of the cover eff- efforts in this film of like, hey, they're good people. Let's not let a few bad apples spoil the good that they're doing. But it's like, well, we don't want to admit that this this is breeding these, these challenges. And there's like that, the secrecy to not just protect the institution, but protect the, the faith itself. And I think that that blurred line is very unique to a religious organization that the business necessarily have, because it's like, well, if I bring this forward, it's going to affect people's spiritual lives and that's going to hurt a lot of people. So let's hide the truth so that we don't hurt people and doing so we double down and create more dysfunction. And I, it's not a part of this movie, but I thought if, if someone wanted to watch something that was a modern day example of this in, and it was also not necessarily tied to the Catholic church. Kayla, I don't know if you've seen this before. It's, it's a documentary. It's now on HBO max. It was on the discovery uh, app until discovery plus until it kind of merged with max, but it's called Hillsong, a mega church exposed. Have you heard of that documentary? I'm familiar with the Hillsong church, but I have not watched the documentary. Yeah, so so Hillsong Church was like was I mean still is to some extent although it's had a massive fall off but like one of if not the most influential mega churches across the country since like the late nineties and they primarily got started because of their music they attracted like top notch musical talent and and created these worship CDs and this musical album and, and revolutionized like Christian music industry and like I mean I grew up in playing music in church and so I played all these Hillsong songs and bought the newest album every time it came out. And it was just like, you know, they would travel and do all these concerts and just this documentary starts to reveal like it generated a ton of revenue. But what you see is that Hillsong church was founded by a guy named who's uh, Brian Houston. And what this documentary starts to reveal is that like Brian Houston's father was similar to the pe- the pastors in this uh, church spotlight movie about that essentially were abusing young boys. And, and so you realize that Brian Houston is on trial for covering up his father's sins. And it's just, it's exactly like this movie spotlight, but it's now in real time. And it's also not just the Catholic church. And it's, um, it was very, 
similar to the movie Spotlight, is very angering to me because of my relationship with that church, that the Hillsong content and the music, and and it creates that ethical dilemma of can I still listen to these songs? Like these people, the bass player of this song wasn't necessarily the part that did it, but every time I played that song or bought that album, it sent money to this place and this person. They start to show like not only is there sexual like cover up and scandal in that, but like there's financial fraud happening within this church. And so as this is happening, a lot of the churches that were affiliated with Hillsong started branching off. And eventually the the lead pastor, Brian Houston, was ousted as lead pastor. And now he's on trial for like a couple other things, including a DUI and all this other stuff that was happening. But um, the point of it is like I, there's some parallels that you see in this documentary, I think, that we can apply to this movie Spotlight. So so you see Brian Houston covered up the, the sexual abuse. At least he's accused of it. He denies it. Um, but he was accused of uh, covering up the sexual abuse within the church. Um he prioritized growth and money. And you know you need money to grow, but he was so obsessed with growing his church. I, it's hard to say because you can't judge intent. Maybe it started off pure because of the reach. Like he wanted to have a larger church because of the missional impact and to help more people and to evangelize or whatever. But you just see where that's often the recipe for corruption is when we prioritize the wrong thing as a religious organization. But he started to then build a culture of secrecy to protect the the scandal you know the stuff with his father but then also like continued other scandals he's hiring more leaders that are creating more challenges within his church there's there's the uh, i'm forgetting the names all of a sudden but there's a new york campus that they hire a lead pastor for who um was using his position of power to to kind of uh you know abuse it and you know it, it wasn't as bad as some of the other scandals but he still was in you know had infidelity and he was the lead pastor preaching one thing and doing another thing which hurt a lot of people and then he was kind of made as the scapegoat it seems like to kind of hope that all of this would go away if we fire him. And you see the devastation in this documentary, even of like how it affected his life and his family's life. Um, but it bred other leaders that then were abusing their power. There's countless testimonies of people who were raped or assaulted or just didn't give consent um, by people in spiritual power over them. And when they came forward to report it, nothing was done. And then those people were ostracized from the church. And it, and then and then it comes back to like, oh, all this stuff is being uncovered. And now we realize the, the rotten apple is the guy at the top. And it's just devastating to watch. But I think it gives some intentionality of like, there's things that were put into place to help build what this happens. And it's a newer situation. Whereas like Spotlight, you see in the movie, there's this one scene where Rachel McAdams goes to the this one pastor, he says, yeah, I molested children, but I never got any benefit from it. Well, it's because I was molested. Yeah, I was just, that was, that scene, I was just really like, is he that delusional? Does he really think that? I, like, he really thought that, like, I, I mean, I can only think that there was such a culture around this and he had other priests that were saying, this is what we do. This is, you know, this is how we treat the young people in our parish or whatever that, even he was kind of gaslit about mm-hmm. what this meant. Yeah. And the thing that he says, that's so scary. He's like, well, this happened to me too. Mm-hmm. And so you start to see, Oh, that's the thing that's unique about the, the, the Catholic church institution is like, because of how long it's been around, who knows when this started, but it's been around for decades, if not centuries and just keeps passing down and passing down. Whereas you look at like the Hillsong situation and there's lots of other mega churches. They just don't necessarily have the big documentary that's on it. Um, but there's other, you know, churches and scandals and stuff that have happened as well. But this one kind of points out like this is, this church isn't that old. It's an institution that I want to say it was formed in the eighties, late eighties. So the dysfunction started with his father. I don't know where his father's situation came from, but 
the institutional aspect of it is is a much shorter lifespan than this Catholic Church, and yet you see the same kind of um, challenges that starts to present until finally some sort of checks and balances came out. But in part, they show in this documentary even it wasn't really until the public pressure of the first part of this documentary that really started to create change. There was even some cover up and some like lightening the load of kind of glossing over some of the truth in order to protect Hillsong's brand. And even in that, you're like, man, you're still doubling down on the secrecy instead of being truthful and really presenting the truth. And it was to protect the brand, protect the pastor and, and also try to save face and keep as much of your congregation as possible. Maybe because of money it's, it's speculative, but it's, very frustrating to me. Yeah. So we're kind of looking at like all these dynamics that create shame. Like we're, we're building this culture of secrecy where we don't talk about things. You know, we kind of keep things um, hidden, especially those shameful things, which is going to breed shame, which no one's going to want to talk about. But I kind of see this as so if we're going to look at these organizations and systems, I'm kind of thinking, how do we do the opposite? So how do we create accountability, I think is huge when you're in a leadership position, and also a culture of vulnerability, like a culture where even the highest leader can still be vulnerable about their faults or concerns or whatever is going on. So what comes to your mind? You know, you're, you're now in a, a, a leader you know, a leadership position in your work, which gives you kind of a new, unique perspective on a situation like this. Like when you talk about building those things, like what are some of the things that come to your mind? Yeah, I... Um, I'm a big fan of having like outside um, supervision, like a person for like, like someone that is going to be checking with you about like your kind of moral compass, like checking in and saying like, are you living according to your values? So I have people like professionally that I go to, to, you know, ask questions, to supervise, to talk about things with. And then I have, you know, like a personal therapist and I have people in my personal life who I go to, to kind of talk about, emotional content or where the like lines can get blurred between professionalism versus personal issues and things like that. Um, but yeah, just really being mindful of where some of those things come up and being aware of your own insecurities and flaws or experience and like where you might need to get some outside help with those things and being willing to admit that. It's hard to get that within your organization when you're the top leader. There's, there's a phrase that people use all the time, like the loneliness of leadership. And so in addition to feelings of loneliness, loneliness can breed isolation. It can breed secrecy. It can breed these things. And who do you talk to about these these challenges that, that come up, right? These desires. I think the movie talks about this a little bit. And we talked a little bit before we started recording of like the celibacy culture of the priests actually was one of the struggles that facilitated when you have extreme boundaries on something, it can create these desires in you that then when you combine that with the secrecy, the isolation, the loneliness, and then also the positions of power can really facilitate some really harmful things just by the, the situation itself, let alone someone's character. Because again, assuming that the person is going in with the right intentions of, I want to make a difference and I want to be, use my, you know, use this experience for good. And, and yet all these factors are essentially ingredients for a really bad recipe. So, so having somebody that you're building in this, um, this accountability and, and openness with is, is vital, even if it's not within the organization. I, I was thinking about that as well. Like you and I, our profession, while very you know different from pastoral, there's a couple of things that are similar in the sense of like the power balance. We have to be, and it's a very intimate profession, right? So pastoral care is a very intimate profession or priesthood or things like that. Same thing with therapy. 
Um, the only the primary difference is that we don't represent an, another authority figure above us, like sp- from a spiritual mm-hmm. perspective. But our moral integrity is still is very tied to the the messages of emotional and and mental wellness that we essentially preach. Um, even though we do more question asking than giving advice, you know, our moral failures would could potentially have an impact on the clients that we serve if they were found out. But I think the big difference that I see that we have is we also, if we ask for it and build it in, have the ability to seek out supervision, not from a, necessarily a boss, but like other therapists. And we can talk mm-hmm. through like, hey, I was meeting with this situation. Like I, I mentioned it before, before we start recording, like coming from my experience growing up, not just growing up in the church, but like my church ministry internship and thinking I was going to do full-time ministry at some point in the church, like we had very strict boundaries about what, you know, like meetings and structures and, you know, uh, you know, time spent with the opposite genders. And it was like to go from that to like, I'm in a room meeting with women, talking to them about very vulnerable and intimate things. Like that's a lot to process as something that this is a very new experience for me. Um, because I just didn't have that before. And so it's really helpful for me to like process like, yeah, this was a really, I've never had this come up a conversation when you're talking about shame and body image with a, with a woman, you're like, okay, how does that make me feel? And what do I, what goes through my mind and being able to debrief that with someone else instantly surfaces it and shines a light on it. So it doesn't have the ability to kind of fester underneath the surface. And I feel like that's a healthier approach than just having intense, strict boundaries and saying, just don't have conversations. Right. Mm. I, I mean, what, you know, your perspectives on this is going to be different from mine, but what are your thoughts on something like that and how supervision is helpful and how we could maybe bring that into like a religious organization? Yeah. I mean, I think like when we're usually doing supervision, it's like a case by case basis, but like you can also talk proactively about things. Like I think if we were to approach these concepts of a, it's not an if, but a, when this happens, framework because Mm -hmm. if we're saying if this happens we're loosely planning and we're not really making boundaries or really talking about what that would be like or you know how we would wrestle with that or feelings that would come up but even like from a clinical perspective if like when I get a client who's this or that because you might start we all have like certain populations that we don't want to work with given you know personal trauma or whatever and and maybe similar with like religious, you can't really say no to working with someone, but mm-hmm. like you might come across people that are just harder personalities for whatever reason to deal with. And thinking of, okay, when I get a person who has these characteristics or these concerns or whatever they're wrestling with, how am I going to approach that? Okay. Maybe I need to up my supervision. Maybe I need to set boundaries around when I meet them. Like, you know, like I know there's going to be a lot of emotional content. So maybe I see less people that day so I can take some time to process or talk with other colleagues or, mm-hmm. you know, set some parameters around that of like what is going to be the most ethical and most beneficial for both client and myself to see this person. Yeah, I think that's really wise. And and we have a unique structure often because of, you know, like there's different types of therapist roles. Some of our in, in clinics and, and, you know, different organizations and others are private practice. So if it's a private practice or a specific like solo kind of private practice therapist, that's not a part of a group, they have to be intentional about seeking that out. But I, 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 I'm pretty sure like, I think it, there's obviously there's lots of organizations that exist like this, but a pastor or a religious leader is going to need to be in advance going, all right, so what does my version of that look like? Right. Mm-hmm. So is it a peer group? Is it a peer support group that I can tap into? Is it, um, you know, like retreats are helpful, but is there like, who's, who's the person that's checking on me or that I can check in and have honest conversations with. And, um, because I'm not sure that that, 
how that works within the denominations or these larger infrastructures. But if that's not there, that can breed secrecy, isolation, um, not necessarily dishonesty in the form of lying, but dishonesty in the form of withholding truth. And I think those are things that create some of these challenges as, as well. Um, but I, what, one thing I wanted to kind of talk through and kind of switching gears from the macro approach and zooming in a little bit more is like the impact that re- church or religious trauma can have on an individual, right? And I was thinking about like the term that you and I have used in, in I don't remember what episode, it was a long time ago, but there's a, a term when describing trauma that I think is really important for listeners to know of like the, the big T and the little T definitions of trauma, right? So this this movie deals with a lot of big T trauma things like rape, assaults, molestation, those kinds of things that are a physical threat to my safety and that really damage me in that way. Um, but there's some little T traumas that happen within the, tea, the church too. They can really be devastating for people, especially if never worked through. What are some things that come to your mind as far as like maybe some some religious traumas that maybe aren't as front and center as the movie Spotlight presents? Um, some little T traumas. So it, that could be anything that was like traumatic or disruptive to your life or your your well-being or your lifestyle um, that still have an impact, but they're just maybe not as like catastrophically impactful. So um, like having to move churches due to like a difference in ideology or, you know, different people coming and going. Um, I'm trying to think of like within the church, little T traumas um, or, you know, even like, yeah, I think of like moving churches as one mm. of like the big ones I think of for whatever reason that you have to do that. Well, especially if you have a family and you've grown up in a church, right? So you have this experience with like, this is where I've grown up and raised my kids, or this is where I met my spouse or whatever those things are. You have that like that long lasting experience. And all of a sudden something happens at the church that you have to uproot all of that and then go find a new place, hoping that you can recreate some of the positive things that can be really traumatic for somebody because like, it's not just about the Sunday morning experience, especially if you're involved heavily or a volunteer there or, um, or even on staff there, you know, it's like, it can be really traumatic, you know, something again, more so than just like uprooting from a job because like of the impact that it has on your family system and the, and the social network, there's one of the, the religious traumas that happens often is like if someone leaves a church, whether it's because of bad hurt feelings or because of something that happened or, um, differences in opinions or whatever, not only do they leave that system, but sometimes they're kind of, whether on purpose or not, kind of ostracized from that social support network. Oh, that mm-hmm. person left this church and maybe we don't feel like we can interact with that person anymore. And and it can be devastating. And, and, it, and it's very often subconscious, but because it's like that out of sight, out of mind thing, you lose your, you can lose your entire social support network. I've seen that very common and I've felt that. I've experienced that as well. It's a very challenging thing that you, you wouldn't in, put in the same category as some of these traumas that this movie highlights, but it can be very traumatic and you see the long lasting ramifications of those kinds of things happening um, over time that might prevent someone from attending a church again in the future or even affecting their faith altogether as a person. Mm -hmm. I think the the things I was thinking about was just um, kind of uh, the, the impact that these traumas can have on somebody like, you know, the, the hurt feelings, the rejection, unmet expectations can be a little T trauma, you know, losing your faith over stuff like this. And I, I think that it's important to speak to those kinds of things as well, which we could probably do in a different episode. There's just not enough time to dive into that stuff. But I think being aware of the abuse of power 
as a leader, right? So we've talked about it from a macro standpoint, the systems perspective, but let's put ourselves in the role of like a, a ministry leader or a pastor or a priest, right? So being mindful of how our actions can help people, what are some, or hurt, can, well, they can help people for sure, but they can also hurt people. Like what are some things that we, I can do as a pastor or as a ministry leader to um, be mindful of how my power um, might impact those around me? Yeah, I um, I think language is really important. So like the language, being very mindful about the language that you're using, um, especially when you're in one of these positions. So not, I mean, it's a little hard to say with pastors because they do kind of give guidance, but not like directly giving advice of you have to do this, as I say, um, because then it's like a very narrow field that this person can live in and, and thrive in based on your framework. Um. Yeah. And also that like getting some sort of like accountability outside of yourself or your parish or whatever your organization is, because you're kind of this little internal system, but like having some outside influences to kind of keep you in check. Yeah. It's a tough position. Like I was talking to a friend of mine who is a a pastor and we were just like the expectations that a pastor has now these days, like you have to be like good at speak public speaking. You have to be good at pastoral care, like actually like caring for your people. You've, you've got to be a good marketer. You've got to be a good like organizational leader. Um, you've got to be good at finances to some extent. Like you don't have to be the best and eventually you can build that team. But when you're starting off, like you have to be good at so many different things. And it's like, well, what do you prioritize, right? If I'm great at caring for people, but public speaking isn't my thing, that might affect my Sunday morning experience. If the guy's like, ah, I'm tired of, like, this guy's boring to listen to. But vice versa, if I'm a great public speaker and uh, I'm not great at caring for my people, that's when people get really hurt and wounded. And you might have large congregations, but then you've got this massive kind of backdoor turnover where people are coming in for a couple weeks and getting hurt and leaving. And eventually churches shrink. And I've seen that happen. And it's really hard to watch where someone's using their charismatic speaking skills to grow the church but they don't have that heart for caring. And maybe it started off because they just shouldn't have been put in that position in the first place. It didn't start off because they were a bad person, but the size and the growth of the organization and the stress that it encounters or accrues, I should say, creates this kind of recipe for disaster. But it's a lot of pressure that these people are under in order to accept these positions. And I, I almost feel like it's unfair, right? It's, it's not a, it's, it's a, it's a tough position to be in when you have to put like the, organizational leadership aspect on top of the the care aspect it just creates a lot of additional stress that you got to have your stuff together and that's just a hard position to be in and then if you fail quote unquote or you're struggling at those positions so you don't want to let people down and that's where the secrecy starts and that abuse of power can really be put into place where I, I think in our professions it stresses that a lot of being mindful of how mm-hmm. you use your power and um, I don't know if they have this in with your license but with like social work you've got the, the the code of ethics right you have to follow these things and if not your license can be put in place I'd be curious to hear from a, a person in, in ministry um, what kind of checks and balances they have in place from an ethics standpoint that they're obligated to follow and if they have that same kind of conduct uh, ethical guideline that we have in our yeah, I, I think like being very vulnerable with your competency as a leader is really important. So saying like, you know, I'm great at these things. I'm really going to hone that, but I'm not so great at these other things. I might need to bring someone in or like have someone compliment my skill set in this way because I know Rick is really good with this or so-and-so is really good with this and see if they can come aboard and do some of those things that I'm not so good at. 
Yeah, yeah. Like, like uh, Kayla, you, you are better than me at a lot of things. <laughs> like, if I want to do art, I'm doing stick figures. I am, <laughs> I am, uh, you know, drawing with squiggly lines. I'm not the person to lead art therapy, right? I'm like, hey, my my stuff is a hot mess. I can't teach you anything, right? But if I'm doing art therapy, like, I want to reach out to Kayla, like, to to lead the projects and the the creative pieces. Like, I'm creative, but not with art. Whereas yeah. you're going to be gifted in that area. So that would be something I would want to heavily rely on and not allow my pride to get in the way of putting people in their strengths positions and positions of, uh, you know, of success. I, I think ultimately a lot of it does come down to pride. When you're in a position yeah. of power, you can, you can quickly gain ego. And I think from a spiritual perspective, the thing that happens in this movie that you kind of see underlying the surface is there's a lot of pride in these people of like, mm-hmm. I can handle this. I can do good and I can cover this up. There's no consequences. And the pride is ultimately what kind of enhances the systematic problems and leads to the corruption that you see. Um, Kayla, one, one other thing that we, we mentioned that we wanted to cover. And it's again, this is a hard episode to, to talk about because there's just, there's so much heaviness in it. But one of the things we haven't spent any time on is the grooming that you see in this film. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's again, it's, it's not really a, uh, a lighthearted topic, right? But one you see like, these pastors who are already, or these these priests who are already in positions of, of power, grooming these young kids to be something like, I, it's hard to find the right questions to ask about this. But when when you see that in this film, and when that topic comes to mind, what are some of the thoughts that you have on the, I guess, on the issue of grooming? Yeah. So grooming. So for people who aren't familiar with that term, and we're not talking about hygiene, although yeah, dog grooming very different. Uh, <laughs> trimming trimming a dog's fur, not what we're referring yeah. to. So I so guess let's grooming, define it for people. Yeah. So grooming can. Um, it's kind of like titrated manipulation is kind of how I think of it. So it, where we typically see this in the context of pedophilia. So like a younger person and a much younger, older person and a much younger person, and the older person is preying on the young person. So. Um, slowly getting them used to the idea of working up to some sort of sexual abuse to some degree. Um, but really this could be anyone in a position of power, like where there's this like strong power and control dynamic over the other person. It doesn't have to be um, in this sort of relationship. But so when we think of like grooming, it's like slowly kind of titrating them to um, it might be kind of uncomfortable to do all of what, like to just, you know, out of the blue to have an abuser abuse a victim would mm-hmm. be, they might, you know, go to the police or go to their parents or be really confused. But if you give them enough, t- like, um, exposure to mm-hmm. this world over time, which they talk about in the film a lot of how they, the priests did this, then it doesn't seem as strange or odd or out of context when they, the abuse actually takes place. So they talk about um, how the priests are having conversations about sexuality and identity with these boys, which inherently not too wrong but it kind of like blurs the surface of like why are they bringing this up you know it'd be kind of odd for an adult to be just like randomly talking about this with children um but then over time like pornographic imagery and exposing them to more and more things of this um this world so that when it actually comes to the real life thing happening of the, the sexual abuse that it seems to normalize the behavior so the victim is not they're more wrestling with oh i guess this is just normal and this person, you know, um, they're also looking really fondly on this person and this dynamic, you know, of this person who's very close to God. My family loves this person. Um, so this seems normal. So I must be the one that's odd because I don't I still don't feel right about it. I, there's something off, but I don't want to say anything if this is normal and this is what it is to be godlike in mm-hmm. this 
circumstance. Yeah, you see that in the victims as they're interviewing the victims in this film of like, once it was at this point, I didn't want to do it anymore, but this person is God to me. I think there was a quote in the, mm-hmm. the, the movie, uh, when, when a priest pays attention to you, it's a big deal. How do you say no to God? Mm-hmm. And and so when that attention shifts into sexual attention or into these other things, it's like, oh, now I'm hooked. right? And so you see like that gradual moving the needle that these priests have in this and, and to earn the trust of these young boys. And once their explicit kind of desires are are finally kind of brought to the surface it's too late because they've already been hooked in and and now it's about protecting the secrets and and it's just devastating content so i think you know being aware and being mindful especially as parents but of like the signs and and, and things like that and again it's a different episode from this but i think you know the, the the you see the the grooming in this film is a byproduct of the institutional dysfunction that mm-hmm. allows people to have these kind of you know, private private moments that are so intimate, and you see these predatory kind of things of like uh, the these pers- these people come from you know broken homes and painful backgrounds, and often with poverty, and and so they're very vulnerable. And if I am uh, not getting my needs met, and I have like this these repressed desires, and now I'm with a vulnerable population, it just breeds catastrophe. And so um, I think you know, putting those institutional pieces in place can help screen those things out. But if you want to close your eyes to it and be blind to it, then that's what allows this dysfunction to happen within your organization. And man, ugh, it is so, so frustrating. But the thing I love about this movie that does make me want to rewatch it uh, and oddly put it in my top 10 is they found it out. They got the story mm-hmm. right. They surfaced it. They started to save lives. They started to prevent these things. And it creates hope in that there are good people out there that can uncover the truth and, bring to light the dysfunction and the corruption and, and hopefully by um, doing so, we can also start to monitor like, what do we have in place as an organization to prevent something like this happens and not be naive to the fact that something like this could happen because even if it's not sexual abuse, I have seen it firsthand how um, unchecked leadership can create absolute catastrophe and dysfunction and hurt a lot of people within an institution of religion and again the consequences have to be acknowledged that it's a different type of consequence than other types of hurts because it has a spiritual ramification and i think being mindful of that so if you're someone who's thinking about organizational uh leadership or religious leadership or maybe you're currently in that position the goal isn't to say hey you know, we're trashing the institution, right? But we want to prevent these things from happening. So getting the support that you need in advance, acknowledging your own desires, acknowledging your own stuff and and shining a light on it with people that you trust in a safe environment, maybe even from a therapeutic environment. I mean, we both see th- other therapists as, uh, as professionals. I think one of my favorite things is working with other leaders and because you, you know how hard it is and you're learning this now, like sometimes being at the top of an organization is very hard. It feels very lonely. So mm-hmm. it, don't be afraid if you are in that position to reach out for help, to, to acknowledge those struggles, to acknowledge the, the challenges that that position breeds because there are people who want to help and who are cheering you on because your position is very important. Mm-hmm. Kayla, what kind of movie do you need to turn on after watching something like this to kind of like change the mood? <laughs> you watch a heavy movie like Spotlight. Uh, what, what's, a, what's a go-to to kind of like switch gears? Oh, like... Either like anime, like lighthearted family anime, or you know, Twilight's a good old. <laughs> yes, movie. I like that one. <laughs> I like watching you sleep. Yeah, yeah. We, we don't want we don't want Edward serving in ministry. We we feel like that that might be a there's a little creepiness to him. I, I'm a little concerned about that. But yeah, I thought about um, 
Uh, <laughs> there's some similarities. I feel like I just need to go back to the Barbie movie after this. I'll play the guitar at you. Oh, yay. <laughs> Barbie would be a great one to watch after this. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So maybe, maybe we'll throw on the Barbie movie after this conversation. Well, thank you for making time. I know this is a very different episode to listen to. Um, it is no doubt a heavy topic. It's an important topic. And there's people who could dive into the nuts and bolts of the religious institution better than we could as mental health professions. But we just want to shine a mental health perspective on some of the dysfunction that can happen and how we can create some checks and balances from a people perspective to avoid those things. So hopefully this was engaging for you. I don't know if entertaining is the right word. Um, maybe you found some entertainment for it. I know I, know I um, uh, must have something wrong with me that I just love watching this movie. I've probably seen it five or six times and uh, I, I can rewatch it again for, for some odd reason, but I, I think it's because it means something and it matters. Um, so with that, we, we appreciate your time. We appreciate you, you sticking with us on, on doing an episode like this and we'll see you next time on cinema sessions. Ocean! We need that good feminine energy.